We're starting a new series called Small Books, Big Ideas. Small Books, Big Ideas. We're gonna look at the five smallest books in the Bible, or should I say the shortest books in the Bible. One in the Old Testament, Obadiah. Four in the New Testament, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. So we'll do that over the next five weeks. These are books that we rarely talk about. Occasionally we'll go into them, certainly not Opadiah. I don't think you've ever been there unless you're reading through the Bible. It's on page 724 in the Bible in front of you. Turn to it, and I've asked Elizabeth to read the entire book. That's how short it is. We're gonna read the entire book of Opadiah. It's, I'll tell you about it in a minute. Let me just say one thing. The first sermon I ever preached, I was 19 years old. And I call, I, we used to name sermons back then, and it was on Opadiah. The very first sermon I ever did, I called it, Who's Opadiah, Who Cares? <laughs> At the end of the day, you will care. Let's hear from God's word. Good morning, church. Follow along as we read the entire book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who says in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you nest, your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever." On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors 
in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. Wow. And you're saying, why on earth are we doing this book, aren't you? A lot of words there, but it's fantastic. Wow, hot tea, thank you. Mm. Thank you, Clay. It's his birthday, but don't tell him I told you <laughs> today. Wow. So there are four things I want to talk about, but before I do, I want you to get the big idea of this book. So there's one big idea of the book, because I said every week we'll go after the big idea from the book, from the small book, and this is it if you want to write it down. God is in control and he has our best interest at heart. God is in control, and he has our best interest at heart. This is a story about Edom and about Israel. We'll talk about them in a moment. So, but the first point is this, just starting. It's a vision of Obadiah. Just so you know, we know nothing about Obadiah. The other ones, we know about Jonah, we know about Amos, we know about Haggai, we know about Habakkuk, we know some backgrounds. We know nothing about the background of Obadiah. Was he married? Did he have kids? When did he actually write this? We don't know. But what we do know that it is the vision of Obadiah against Edom. That we do know, that's point number one. You can advance the slides so they can see that as well. Since my voice isn't working, I'll just talk to the guys in the back as well. Point number two, and this is what's very important, is that there's pride involved here. It's the pride of Edom. So the, the slides aren't working, so we'll move forward. The pride of Edom. Now, this is a story about pride, and I want you not to think about Edom, and I'll tell you who Edom is in a minute, but I want you to think about yourself. Have you ever been proud before? Who, who has? Let me just, wow, good, good. Not good, but 
it's good that you're self-reflective and self-aware here. There are five things about pride that we learn from Edom. Now, let me just tell you who Edom is. So Edom is a small country that's just to the east of Israel. A simple geography lesson will tell you this, that Israel, as you know, is about 100 miles long and about 35 miles wide. That's Israel, that's all it is. That's Palm Beach County, Broward County, and Dade County. If you think of our three counties that we live in, that is Israel, all of Israel. And if you think of Date County as being Judah, where Jerusalem is, you think of Broward County, Samaria, and you think of Palm Beach County, the Galilee, and the area of the Lake of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, and all that that we hear, those are kind of the three sections. We're talking about Date County right now because we're talking about the area of Judah and Jerusalem. And that's about the size that it is, maybe 30 miles this way, 30 miles this way, and that's what is left because the rest of Israel have been abandoned. They've been taken over by the Syrians, and the only thing left is the area around Jerusalem. There are countries around Israel, and they're named here. First of all, there is Edom. Edom is that country to the south and east, okay? So between Edom and Israel is a river, the Jordan River. It divides them. So you have Israel that's on mountains. Jerusalem's on a mountain. It goes down to the valley, to the Jordan River, and it goes back up to the other mountains, the mountains of Edom. They have a lot of other names, but those are the mountains. The mountains in Edom, um, it's said in my Bible, they're called Selah. In some of your Bibles, it's called Petra. Have you ever heard of the city of Petra? Remember? Indiana Jones in the Last Kingdom, Last Crusade and all that, Petra, they were able to build their cities inside of the mountains, not on the mountains, not below the mountains, but in the mountains. And so they were able not to be taken over. We don't know exactly how they did this. Archaeologists that we have here and our congregation and others could probably tell us exactly how they did it, but they were impenetrable because back then they didn't have guns, they had spears, they had bows and arrows, they were up high. You couldn't get them from the heights, you couldn't get them from below, they were in the mountains and so unpenetrable. The other thing you need to know about them is in that Jordan River, which actually went north-south this way, Jordan River, was the place where all the supplies and all the, 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 um, the goods of Africa came north and then the Silk Road above it that came from India and China and Persia and what was then Eurasia came together and they would sell to each other, south to the north, and they had to pass through Edom to do that. And Edom charged tariffs to go past their country and became very wealthy. So they were a very wealthy country and impenetrable, so they were saw themselves as the best. Now below was the Negev and there were people down there. To the east, the opposite side was uh, the Philistines, what we would call the Gaza Strip nowadays. To the north was Ephraim and there were some enemies there and to the way north were the Canaanites that it talks about. Some of your Bibles say Phoenicians. So all these little city states were around Israel, but this is about Edom. 
And so let's find out what are the five areas of pride that Edom had that God is saying through Obadiah that it was wrong to have. Can we talk about them? Number one in verse three uh, and four, the pride of your heart has deceived you, Edom, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, who will bring me down? Though you soar aloft like the eagles, you know, they're up there in the mountains like the eagles, and your nests are among the stars, from there I will bring you down. They had the pride of location. Write down location. This is interesting. I'm reading a book right now on the geography of the United States. And one of the things that uh, this book says is one of the reasons why the United States is so great over the years is because of its location. It's quite interesting. We have the best harbors in the world because they're protected by barrier islands. We have the best rivers in the world because there aren't waterfalls. You can navigate our rivers. You can do commerce on our rivers. We have two oceans dividing us from all our enemies that are huge and we can protect ourselves and we have a friendly country to the north and a friendly country to the south and that's all we have. And we have been protected in this country because of our location. And a part of the greatness of the United States is our location. It was interesting, the Edomites said, our location, we're up in the mountains, we're protected. Our location has protected us. And yet God has said that pride is gonna bring you down and you will be torn down. And the only thing that's left of the Edomites now are the old ruins of Petra and other of the cities that are over there in that area. It's kind of interesting. They are long gone. Be careful when you have the pride of location. I never realized I had this pride, but I do have this pride. I love where I live. I love Boca Raton. I think anybody who doesn't like Boca Raton needs to do whatever, like move, because I think it's the greatest place in the world. I had, I had to work through my own pride of location. Now, I'm not talking about pride and you're glad you live there, but that sense that we're better than someone else. Have you ever felt that way? That's part of pride, by the way. I don't know what your pride is, but every once in a while I think we live in a better place than everybody else and we are better than, and that's pride. And that's not right. These people had that pride. But they go on to the second one and they had a pride in their wealth. Now they were the wealthiest around because they collected the tariffs in the Transjordanian Valley there between the Africans coming up, the Persians, the Chinese, the Indians, and the Eurasians that were coming down to trade with the Africans, they all had to pass one way. There was desert on one side, there was the Mediterranean Sea on the other side. There was only one way to pass, which was that valley where the Jordan River is. They had to pass through Edom and pay the tariffs. They're the wealthiest, little city-state that existed. Look at verse uh, five. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? That's a question. They didn't, they stole more. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. In other words, that nation was gonna lose all its wealth because of their pride. They had the pride of wealth 
and they lost it all. He said, most people, when they steal something, leave something. I know we've been robbed in the past, and they took a few things, but they left a lot of things. They didn't steal everything. Thieves don't ever steal everything. They steal some things, but Edom had everything stolen. Let's look at the third one. This is interesting. The pride of alliances, or let's call it the pride of friendships. In verse seven, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you that they have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. This, you don't understand if you're not Middle Eastern here. I'm not Middle Eastern, but I'm married to a Middle Eastern woman, so I began to understand this. When you give bread to someone, that is an ultimate act of friendship. We don't understand this, but what did Jesus even say? He used, let us break bread together in that final act of friendship, if I could use that word in quotes, between us and Christ for what he did for us. He used bread as a symbol of it. Why? Because bread that is broken is a symbol of friendship. Um, Elizabeth taught me something, and we've been doing it for years. When we have friends who buy a new home, one of the things we do is we take a piece of bread with us, Arabic piece of bread or an Israel, you know, the pita bread, the thin loaf. And when we enter the home for the first time of a new homeowner, we break the bread. And we pray for the homeowner and we pray for the home. It's an act of grace that we as friends with the homeowner do as we want God to bless the home. We take that piece of bread, break it, and then we actually each eat a piece of it. It's an act of friendship. And what this scripture is saying, all the people around you, all those other kingdoms are pretending to be your allies and they're breaking bread with you and say, eat with us, eat with us, eat with us. And then they're going to deceive you and destroy you. The pride you think that everyone is your friend, everyone is allied with you, allied with you, is not so, Edom, you are coming down. We'll talk about why they're coming down in a minute, but their pride is bringing them down. Then the next one is wisdom. The pride of wisdom, verse eight. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau? These were the magi. Now these are not the magi of the story of Christmas, that's the Magi from Persia, but these had Magi as well, the wise men. And they felt because they were so wise, and can I just say, they were very wise. They had the ability to do that architecture. They had the ability to figure out uh, the sciences that to this day we can't sometimes figure out how they were able to do that. These were very smart men and women, and yet they had a pride in it. He said, you're going down. It's an amazing thing. Many of us take pride in our education, don't we? We take pride in what we do. We take pride in what we know. We think we are very knowledgeable. And the reality is that pride is gonna bring you down someday. And then the ninth, uh, in verse nine, the last one is this. The fifth one is the pride of strength. The pride of strength. And your mighty men shall be dismayed 
so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. In other words, their armies will not last. They think they will last. And here's the interesting thing. I don't know how you are, but have you ever gone to a place and when you were a kid, and then you came back and you realized how small it was? And you thought it was so huge. Have you? It's amazing. You do that. Edom thought they were huge. Now think about it in the scope of the Egyptian dynasty, the Greek dynasty, the Persian dynasty. The, of course, the Romans were the hugest. Edom was not much bigger than Boca Raton, maybe even smaller. And they thought themselves as the biggest and the best and the strongest. And the reality was it didn't take much. And we're not sure who brought them down. It, was, it could have been the Greeks. It could have been the Persians. We're not really sure historically who brought them down, but they were brought down like this. And when they were brought down, they were never rebuilt. The city stays empty. It's interesting. We think we have this incredible strength that we're big. In the scope of life, we are not that big. As proud as you may be, you're not that big. Now, he explains, I'm going to explain this. So he explains why is he judging them? Because a lot of people have pride. I mean, this is like, he's going to destroy a whole nation because of pride. Well, the five things, and this is why he's doing it. Pride is the, the what they were doing. Why is God destroying him, them? And this is it. In verse 10, the first one is this, because of covenant abuse. Now that's a big word, covenant abuse. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now this is what I left out of the story. Another name for Edom is Esau. The Edomites were the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, generational of Esau. The Israelites, of course, are the generational descendants of Jacob. Jacob and Esau are brothers. There's a covenant there. And in reality, somewhere, we don't know where, but if you're familiar with the Americas, there's a thing called the Monroe Doctrine. Has anybody ever heard of the Monroe Doctrine? The Monroe Doctrine is this that if you come against my neighbor, I will go against you to protect my neighbor. So if somebody fights against Canada, the United States will go against that person or that group because we have a doctrine that says, if you've gone against Canada, you've gone against us. That's what the Monroe Doctrine is. They had that covenant as well. That covenant was, if you go against my brother, you've gone against me. That's a very Middle Eastern thing, by the way. And so people came against Israel and they didn't do anything about it. They sat on the sidelines. Now think about it, they're only about 15 miles away from Israel. This is not like they're a long way away. Maybe the distance between Boca to West Palm is the distance they would have to travel to help the people in West Palm. It's not like a long distance, just had to cross the river and right there where the Jordan River is, it's not much wider than this sanctuary. In fact, it's less than this on, in the dry season. They could go right across it and help, but they chose not to. They abused their covenant and God does not like that. 
I have a belief, you go against Israel, you've gone against God. It's my belief, and it certainly was true back in the Old Testament. Verse 11 continues, it says, on that day you stood aloof. Aloof, what does aloof mean? There's callous non-involvement. You didn't help your brother, and then you stood aloof like, why would I help my brother? Do you see that? On the day that strangers carried away their wealth, that's the wealth of Jerusalem that I talked about a while ago in another sermon, on that day, and foreigners entered their gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like them. In other words, the Babylonians came in and took over Jerusalem, and you didn't do anything to help your brothers, number one, and you watched kind of aloof, if I could do it in a, you kind of watched like this. You're kind of going, okay, they're not gonna get us, but they're gonna get you. Do you see that? A very callousness of it. And then the third area, this is interesting, verse 12, he goes, but do not gloat. They were gloating over this. They got you, but they're not gonna get us. So it wasn't that they didn't help. It wasn't that they stood back while that happened. They're also pointing their finger and gloating at it. Look at it. Over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. An amazing thing. In the misfortune of the Jews, the brothers, they gloated over it. And then they didn't just do that, <clears throat> is do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. That's called gloating. Verse 13 is the last one in 14. But they actually exploited the issue in the time. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over their disaster in the day of their calamity. Do not loot their wealth in the day of calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. So here's what's happened. The Babylonians came in and took over Jerusalem. We know that story. I shared that story a couple of weeks ago. And Jerusalem was taken captive and was gone. And while they were left, the Edomites came and looted the city. They took what was left, they took everything out, and then there were people in Jerusalem that were escaping from the Babylonians, and they're running down the mountain. Jerusalem's up on a mountain, the only way is to go down. They're going down the mountain. Where are they going? Down by the river, so they have fresh water. Who's down by the river? But the Edomites. And the Edomites are capturing them and giving them over to their enemy. They were taking the refugees, the fugitives, that's in quotes, fugitives from the Babylonians, the Jews, and capturing them and giving them back to the Babylonians. That's why God did not like their pride, because they were exploiting their brothers. Kind of interesting, isn't it? So here's a promise. Let's go to the next one. So what is the promise? It starts in verse 17. There's a promise to Israel. I'll skip a couple verses there, it just keeps going. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. 
and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Now think about this. This vision was done when Jerusalem was in ruins and Edom was very successful. You see, God looks at the long game, not the short game. God looks at what's going to happen, not just what's happening today. The problem with us is we look at today and don't look into the future, do we? We see what's happening today. We say God is good, but what's happening today is not good. We say God is powerful, but what's happening today, God is not doing it. We say God is all-knowing, but he doesn't know my problems. Don't we? God is busy all over the world. Why isn't he helping me here in my problems? Now, we may not say it in that way, but that's what happened. So in this promise, Mount Zion is Israel. And Mount Zion will prevail over Mount Esau, which is Edom. So let me go back to the geography for a minute. In the middle of the valley is the Jordan River. Down at the bottom is the Dead Sea. At the top is the Sea of Galilee. On the east side, east is, when you're looking north, east is this way. So on the east side, the opposite of what I'm doing, on the east side is Edom. On the west side is Israel. On the east side are the mountains of Esau. On the west side are what they call the mountains of Zion. The mountains of Zion were losing. The mountains of Esau were winning. And God said, you're going to lose and you're going to win because I am in control and I have your best interest at heart. And that is the thing that we must understand. Obadiah is a book about hope. It's a book about understanding that in the future, not even in the future, right now, God has our best interest at heart. But we don't necessarily see it. And what is hope? Hope is taking what today's circumstances are and looking ahead and seeing that God is in control. And so what we see historically in this book of Obadiah is everything that God said through the vision of Obadiah came through after the fact. Every single thing. You can read it line by line and see it. All the kingdoms around it were gone and Edom was gone. Now here's the thing. Israel was gone for a while too, wasn't it? Israel went away. It was taken captive in 586 BC. 70 years later, it was brought back. Then in 70 AD, it was dispersed again. Do you realize in the Bible, there's only 37 years where Israel and the church existed together? From 33 approximately AD 
to 70 AD. That's when the book of Acts was written. And then all of a sudden, Israel is gone again. And you go, where does this all make sense? But in your lifetime and in my lifetime, if you were born after 1948, Israel returned back, didn't it? It's returned back to the land, to the same land, to the same cities that we're mentioning here. Israel is there. And what's interesting is the Edomites are there. It's now called Jordanians. The Gaza is there. It's called the Palestinians. The Negev is there. It's called the Egyptians. The Canaanites are there. They're called the Hezbollah and the Lebanese. They're all still there. But who's in control of that land right now? It's Israel. Israel is in control of that land. I think it's a great honor that God gave back to the children of Israel the land that they started with thousands of years ago. Now that's the part of the end of the story which we won't get to today, but let's think of you. Let's bring this down before my voice goes. Do you realize God is in control and he has your interest at heart? See, this is the beautiful thing, and this is the thing that people struggle with. We know God is good. We know God is all-powerful, but we forget that he's all-knowing. We think, yeah, he's good, and he's powerful, but he's dealing with so much, he's not dealing with my issue. He's not dealing with what I have to deal with. The amazing thing is God is good, God is all-powerful, he's all-good, all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and he has our interest at heart, in his heart. How do we know this? How do we know this? It's the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save who or whom? Those who were lost. That's all of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus, the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ came because of you and me. And you go, how can that be? There's seven billion, eight billion, 10 billion people who have lived, maybe 12 billion people who have lived. Did Jesus Christ come Yes, the answer is yes, because he cares for you. And that's the beautiful thing about our belief and understanding. You can have a personal relationship with the Almighty God. Or you can allow these things like pride to obscure your view of God. The pride of location, the pride of wealth, the pride of possessions, the pride of alliances and friendships, the pride of wisdom, the pride of your own strength. So many people say, I don't need God. And in a sense, for a moment or two, they're right. But that moment or two will pass because you will always not have your location, your wealth, your strength, your alliances, correct? Those possessions. They come, they go. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. The same Jesus that came 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus that saved the people 500 years ago is the same Jesus that's saving people today. And do you know him? Because if you do not, it's not a good ending. I know we're not allowed to talk about hell. We're not allowed to talk about damnation. We're not allowed to talk about destructive things in our cancel culture. But there is a sense that it's true. God came to save us from something, did he not? That's what we need to understand. He didn't come to save, he came to save us from something, and that was from our own destruction. Because ultimately, we will end up like Edom if we don't come to faith in Jesus Christ. So today, this very uh, dirge-like book of the Bible, Opadiah, and you go, I'm never gonna read it again. Understand this, it goes back to the core of our issues. Pride comes before a fall. Haughty spirit before destruction. But humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God has called us in another of my favorite minor prophets, Micah. What has he told us to do? To love justice to do mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. And that's what I ask you to do. Let us pray together.